Hello, everybody, and welcome to yet another edition of RZ Weekly, our weekly podcast about religious Zionism, modern orthodoxy, and everything in between. My name is Yuvin Spalter. I'm here with Harav Johnny Solomon, Harav Anik Malibrovsky, uh, and we're going to discuss, we're going to follow up on our anti-Semitism discussion by uh, starting with uh, a post on Facebook by Itai Lahav. So he, Itai Lahav on Friday, last Friday, after listening to our podcast, he wrote a nice, a wonderful Facebook post by beginning by saying, I'm a big fan of the RZ Weekly podcast. So you had me there, Itai. I mean, really, like, enough said. <laughs> you know, we need more fans like you. Next time you should tag us so people would see the podcast. But other than that, I have no criticisms about the, uh, about the comment. So the first thing he did was he, qu- he, he wrote about what I quoted. We had a long discussion about halachahi she'esav sonet Yaakov. And he, he has done some research on it. And the first thing I wanted to mention is that he believes, he quoted an article by Professor Eliav Shachetmin, who wrote, and I think wonderfully and convincingly, that it was a misprint. And it wasn't supposed to be halacha, but it was supposed to be v'halo Esav Soneat Yaakov. And uh, that, that really takes a lot of the wind out of the sails of, to say that it's halacha. And we discussed last week about how it was uh, halachic reality, that it became part of the, that Chazal wrote it in a sort of a religious context. And so it seems that Chazal didn't write it in a religious context, according to Pesheka, Professor Shachemin. And I actually totally accept that argument. But Itai pointed out, and I think correctly so, in a discussion that I had with him, he pointed out that Ramosha Feinstein does write about that language of halacha. And Ramosha Feinstein writes about how it's part of the, it's part of the, the, our, our understanding, just like halacha is true. So what, what Rab Moshe believed, and he thought this was the original text, he believed that this is true as well. This is an, a truism, an absolutism in Jewish life. And what I said to Itayo, and I think this is true, is that it's written in Rashi, and the idea is that even if it was based on a printing error or on a mistake, it's become part of the, of the Jewish literature. It's become part of accurate Jewish literature. It is in Rashi, Halachahi, even though the Midrash is not correct, he's quoting is correct. So that's an interesting discussion. Do you guys want to comment on that before I go on? Do you want to comment about that issue? About Do you agree that it's part of the, once it becomes in Rashi, even if it was based on a mistake, it becomes part of the halachic, or not the halachic, the Jewish um, literature, Jewish uh, um, tradition? Part of the lexicon of rabbinic writing, yeah. yeah. And, and an ethos, yes. Again, it depends how it's taken, and I agree very much with what was said in the post, is that it should not be taken to a place of... Um, describing all non-Jews as holding a certain position, you know, but, but rather describing anti-Semitism in general. But okay, go ahead. Okay, right. so I think we can agree on that. I think we yeah. all agree on that. So that being said, though, Itai Den, and you should see his post, it's on Facebook, you should friend him and then see it. Um, well, maybe we we'll share it on the RZ Weekly. to do this. I hope this is okay, that we're totally... Nah, I, I believe it's once you publish and put it in the public domain, you know, and we're, we're not, I'm not being critical, I don't think at all. He quoted... Um, he quoted a shuvah of Rav Henkin about, uh, about this issue, about Esav Soneyat Yaakov. And he quoted that Rav Henkin was very much against quoting this idea of halacha hisha Esav Soneyat Yaakov. So I did a little bit of research and we started reading the articles of Rav Henkin. And of course, when I sent it to Johnny, Johnny did much, much more research about Rav Henkin's position. So I'm going to throw it to Johnny because Rav Henkin's, Rav Henkin basically, he says in the quote that Itai mentioned, that one shouldn't promote this idea of Esav Soneet Yaakov. It's certainly inappropriate. It's, it's not mechabed. It's not appropriate and not honorable and not appropriate. But Rav Henkin's position comes from a much, much deeper, much more nuanced attitude that I think 
goes to the heart of what RZ Weekly is all about. We talk about RZ religious Zionism, modern orthodoxy, living in Israel versus living in America. Rav Henkin was a Rav who lived in New York City during the, from before the creation of the State of Israel, during the Holocaust, and afterwards as well. And I think that if we were dis- when we discuss, I asked uh, my esteemed colleagues to discuss this tshuva, or the response of Rav Henkin and his writings about this issue, because I think it has a lot to teach us about this unique, challenging moment of anti-Semitism that we find ourselves in. So, of course, I'm going to throw it to Rav Johnny, who will just give us a little bit of a synopsis of Rav Henkin's position, and then we can fight about it. Rav Johnny, please. <laughs> okay, so, well, it's actually quite hard to, to give a clear posi- expression of Rav Henkin's position. So, let's start off with what was sent to us. A wonderful ma'amal in Chivot Ibra, which is a collection of Chivot uh, of Rav and it's important to, to make it very, very clear that we're not talking about Rav Henkin, what we may call nowadays Junior, but Rav Yosef Eliyahu Henkin, um, who lived between 1881 and 1973. And some of these Mamorim are dated, some are not. Um, but we can guesstimate necessarily when they were written. And in the article that we were sent, Rav Henkin makes the following remark specifically to this statement regarding... Esav Sonet Yaakov, and I'll translate it. He says, it's a grave error uh, for those who basically uh, prattle uh, and imply and, and insist that Halakha is that uh, Esav hates Yaakov. Because and the, the, the sin'ah, that uh, sense of hatred, is perpetual. He says, that goes against the truth. That goes against the way the rabbis looked at I suppose that teaching and the wider relationship between Yaakov and Esav and Amikra and, and the text of the Talat itself. Esav wasn't always a perpetual evil person. In fact, uh, and that hatred was able to, shall we say, taper off through more uh, aligned behavior. He says, and just as that happened then in the biblical period, so too as it happened now. So that was the original citation that we were sent, um, as if to teach us that Esav Sonet Diakov shouldn't be understood as an absolute dis- statement about Jewish-Gentile relations, which, if you recall, I'd already pushed back on in our session. But Rav Henkin saying, even if you look at it as stated in Rashi, that's not meant to be halakha, as if to say a statement of fact. Basically, he's, he's critiquing Rav Moshe Feinstein's reading of it, if you recall, our very, very close friends. And Rav Moshe saw him as a, as a rabbinical mentor, but he's saying, I disagree that this is hard and fast fact. However, just to add a little bit more meat to the bones of this conversation, uh, I then uh, looked at a couple of other essays of Rav Enkin. Now, the one we were sent was undated. The one that I found in my copy of... Uh, the uh, Sefer Lev Ivra, which was uh, the 40th Yovel of Ezra Torah, with some essays contained there under the title Sheilot Azman, that was published in 1939. And there, Rav Henkin has a slightly different view of his understanding of the relationship between Yaakov and Esav. Both in the article that we were sent and this one here, he's expressing concerns about maintaining good Jewish Gentile relations and uh, expressing a fear that Jewish behavior could stimulate anti-Semitism. What he's basically saying is, Esa Sonet Yaakov isn't to mean that non-Jews are hardwired to hate Jews. He's saying our behavior is part of a relationship. And if we relate positively, we shouldn't be surprised that we get positive feedback. 
John, I wanted you to do, that's what I wanted you to do. Can you put, meaning you can't, what, what struck me most about Itai's quote is, you can't take Rav Henkin out of context. So can you, do, can you please step back a little bit and put Rav Henkin's comment into the context in which he was discussing it, if you please. Before you get to other writings of Rav Henkin, when you, if you go to this, uh, this writing, what was he talking about and why did he come to the idea of, of, a, of the quote of Esav Sonei Yaakov? Well, uh, again, the, the original article that we have is undated, so it's hard to know. I know that the, the second that I quote is from 1939, and the third that I found in Hadarom, which is later also lit printed, and Dave Ivra is from 1950. Now, what I do know is in those three writings, which at least span 20 plus years, he re continually relates to the motif of Esav and Yaakov. For him, this is a paradigm of Jewish Gentile relations. He doesn't insist on that. Uh, mark of halakha, he, that one hates the other, but he's always reconsidering how can we understand our relationship as Jews in America, trying to find our feet and find our place, and not stir up the hornet's nest. Don't forget, he came from, from Belarus, and he was born in 1881. He understands what anti-Semitism is. He's come to America. He wants the Jewish people to be uh, far away from pogroms, to be far away from anti-Semitism. He's seen what has happened in Europe. He knows how far that can go. And so he's kind of advising people, refracted through his rereading of these texts, how to perhaps better behave, how to keep their heads low perhaps, how to remain loyal and connected to Torah, and in so doing, avoid the threat of uh, anti-Semitism rising its ugly head. Nevertheless, I'll say one further thing, and then you know, Mali Shadad and of course yourself, in each of these writings, and, and it's a little bit too nuanced, I think, for our podcast, I'm happy to share these writings with our readers, there is a slightly different relationship to that paradigm. In the 1931, he looks at the Yaakov and Esau in one particular way, 1959 slightly different. He does believe, it should be made clear, that non-Jews are not considered to be of their uh, He has a positive view of the possibility of Jews relating to non-Jews. He thinks a lot of the remarks of the rabbis of the Midrash relating to idolatrous practices don't apply today. And so he's hopeful about Jewish-Gentile relations. And he believes it's on us to foster good relationships and to be clear about what our task is as Jews, also humble, so that we don't aggravate or frustrate uh, the host community that we're living in. And as a result of that, try and live a life of harmony. Okay, um, Johnny, thank you very much. But that being said, you alluded to it, but I feel that what Rob Henkin was getting at is, is, a, is much less nuanced than the way you described it. Meaning, well, when I read Rob Henkin's article, and Molly, you'll tell me if, the, if you think this is correct, Rob Henkin was talking about the article started from a position of anti-Semitism. And he talks about, he describes the different causes of anti-Semitism. And the fourth one he mentions is hatred of Jews toward non-Jews. But, but he talks about three before them, and he talks about ways that Jewish behavior is a trigger for anti-Semitism. So in that context, then he says, oh, and by the way, we don't help ourselves when we promote the idea that they hate us. But Molly, if you would do me a favor and sort of go through the first three triggers, and then, uh, and then uh, comment on them and, and uh, explain how, how, how you reacted to the way that he describes them. 
Okay, so before I do that, I do want to relate to what, what you just said, this fourth one, and what, what Johnny said, because I think it's it really is important to understand what he's saying in context. Uh, first of all, I want to reiterate that I, I do think that he's saying that nobody should think that it's endemic to a non-Jew to hate Jews. I think that's really mm -hmm. important, um, and I just want to make that very clear. I also want to say that I once heard a, a beautiful, beautiful shiver of Maidan on Shira Shirim, where he talked about... Um, Shir Shirim is the Song of Solomon, and in it you have people, there's a, it's a parable to the relationship between the Jewish people and God, and there are other players who he says are the other nations of the world. And what he demonstrates is that there are times when those players try to get in the way of God's relationship with the Jewish people, and there are times when they try to support it. And so he created a paradigm where he was making space for looking at the relationship between Jews and non-Jews not only through a lens of an animosity, but also th to through a lens of positivity and good relationship. And I think that that's a really important point to make. So I just wanted to make that point because I think it's important. Now, that being said, I do think that you're right, that when Rav Henkin here says, um, don't, I don't know exactly how you just phrased it, but you said something like, don't, how did you say it? Don't hate non-Jews because that No, it's a trigger, meaning he, re okay. he relates to yep. hatred as a trigger fine. for, for okay. anti-Semitism. So so and he, he mentions all right, so three I, I, reasons I, that right, the non-Jews right. hate the Jews. But his, four, his fourth reason, right, is... Well, let's start with that one, two, and three first. Wait, no, no, then no, you can, can understand just, No, I really want to make this fourth point first, and then I'll go back to one, two, and three, because I, because I feel like we just we started this conversation, so I want to continue it, because I think it's really interesting and important what he says. Because what he says is... Don't, um, when we antagonize non-Jews by being antagonistic towards them, right, that's a trigger for them being antagonistic towards us. But I think it's important to understand what he means when he says, when we Jews antagonize non-Jews. He seems to have this very specific meaning to what he says. And what he means, which I think is fascinating, is when the Jewish people, he specifically says it, I'm not saying it, in, in this what he says, um, and specifically, we have to be very, very careful to not be revolutionaries. And he, he says, and then he writes out the word revolutionary. <laughs> the problems in Russia came from this, right? And so one of the things that Rebhenkin says here and his other pieces are Jews have to be careful to not be at the forefront of movements that can be antagonistic in society because they may antagonize non-Jews and that might come back and um, and stir up anti-Semitism. And to me, right, and again, we're going to fight about this, Ruby, to me that very much resonates because... Yes, we are. I, I grew up in a house where this is a story that I heard. It might be completely false and have no basis in reality, but the amount of times I heard this story at my Shabbos table is probably, you know, countless. Well, maybe that's an exaggeration, but I don't remember the number. So this is my father's story. Lenin is on his deathbed. I might have even told it on this podcast in the past. And he wants Trotsky to be his follower. And Trotsky is actually a good revolutionary. Trotsky has the best interests of, of, of people at hand. He's a good communist. He's a good, he, he really would like to create a utopia on Earth. And Trotsky turns it down because Trotsky says, if anything goes wrong and if, and, and if anybody turns against me, they're not going to turn against Trotsky because Trotsky was Jewish. They're going to turn against the Jews. And because of his sense of responsibility to the Jews, Trotsky did not take over the leadership, and that's why Stalin got the leadership, and, and, and Stalin ended up murdering Trotsky. Now again, 
I, I would be surprised if any of that has basic in, basic in historic basis in historical fact. If it does, I would be delighted to know. But the point is the sentiment behind that, which is this idea that Jews have that if we st if we become identified with a movement that ends up have being viewed negatively um, from, from different parts of of um, of the larger social group, it won't just be the leaders. And, and again, Rafenkin quotes Freud, and he quotes Marx, and he quotes, who's the other one he quotes? I forgot. He quotes one more, he quotes a few other people. And to me, I find that absolutely fascinating, especially because I think it's true, and I think it's true today also. And, and I just want to add one more piece that Rafenkin says, just so people know what he says, and then we can take it or leave it, discuss it or not. He says, when he believes that the role of the Jewish people is to remain um, connected and affiliated to Torah and mitzvot, to to um, to, to their religious identity. And so I, I, it's interesting, and we, we kind of a little bit talked about this before or, or had a little conversation about this. I'm not sure, and this maybe is a quite open question, whether he objects to people who are, let's say, grounded in Torah and mitzvot, then having opinions about social issues. I think a lot of his anger is against people who leave behind what he considers their traditional Jewish heritage and use their abilities, and he explicitly says this, use their brains, use their talents to start ideas that have nothing to do with classical Jewish ideas, and that brings the wrath, especially when often it, um, it, 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 it in, a different, in a different place he talks about this, it might even go against other religions, and that brings the wrath of the non-Jews against the Jews. No, he, ex okay, so first crazy. of all, Molly, to answer yes. your question, he explicitly says that Jews who try to get involved in other things that are not connected to Judaism, he said, that's a mistake. Okay. Right. So, uh, okay, fine. It so doesn't matter if you could be a Torah Jew. No, you okay, could be a so, Torah so Jew. Fine. So perhaps okay. that's true. Hakisharon. Okay, so he first says, I have to translate it. It's like, I, I can't. I can't anymore. Hakisharon Hagadol. Sheyisrael. Jewish ability. Migare kinata umot. It, 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 help me out here. It, it, it arouses the jealousy of the nations. Right. So on the one hand, he's saying, he's saying, we're really good. We're amazing. But if we act amazing, people get upset no, about it. No, he says they get we, mad. Have to, we have to work in peace. And, and again, I agree. No, that's no, not what he says. He says Jews in leadership positions around we the world. We have to keep our heads down. We don't be a leader. Don't be, right. a, don't be a leader That's of industry. Right. Don't, don't be a leader out. of media. Correct. Don't stick out. That's right. Don't be That's too strong. Don't develop vaccines. Don't develop innovations. He doesn't say don't, don't develop. Well, he absolutely does. Don't develop vaccines. He says, keep your head down. Don't cause too much attention to yourself as a Jew because it's going to have implication for all Jews. And any Okay. That's number one. So what, he then says, his, it's, it's, it's descriptive and, 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 and it's advice based on history. Yeah. Number one. Number two, uh, he says, uh, basically, when we try to be like the non-Jews, and this is a very well-known, I think it's a, a, a Haredi motif, okay? When we try to be like the non-Jews, that's what causes them to hate us. When do they not hate us? When we act more Jewish. When we, uh, when we keep the Torah, okay. Except you sent me Rabbi Sachs' video, right? A beautiful video on anti-Semitism. Rabbi Sachs explicitly says exactly the opposite. When we try to be like the nations of the world, they hate us and say, why are you trying to be like us? When we act like Jews of the Shtetl, they hate us and say, why are you so different? And I think that history and the Holocaust and everything else basically shows that Rav Sachs is right, that Rav, Rav Henkin is not correct. No, that you're, this, this, right. 
They're both. <laughs> you can't, they say right, opposite right. things. They can't both be right. Of course they're opposite. Right. 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 Sorry, I told you we would fight. No, okay, and well, let well, me well, finish my I have to finish my point. And then you respond. But Rabbi Sachs is saying, they're going to hate us no matter what. Anti-Semitism will exist. They'll hate us because and because we're different and it doesn't matter. Rabbi Hankin is saying, historically, a lot of times, the reason they hate us is because we do things that irritates groups of them and and that makes them hate us so you hate Ruby. some jews do things that irritate yes, groups of and them then, but his and point is that all jew when some jews do things all jews are tarred with the same brush why i don't know but that's always true maybe that's the trotsky story right now that's the story of uh, that's a story of purim it's mordechai Yehudi. he hated all story. jews because he hated one of jew all of judaism Okay, exactly. So to say, one second. So to say that that's the reason you should be more it's religious and, and keep your it's head a down. Reason you have to be careful. It's right, a, so Rav Henkin would have been one of the Chachamim who talked to Mordechai Yehudi and said, "Mordechai, what are you doing? Okay, You're wrong." I think the Mordechai story is totally different. I think the reason Mordechai is not bowing down has. Oh yeah, Johnny's jumping to bit. One more point. Last yeah. point, right? I looked it up on Wikipedia. Rav Henkin, and this was a, this is a very meaningful for me. Rav Henkin vigorously opposed Zionism. Once the state of Israel was established, he declared the need to support its continued existence and denounce those who tried to undermine it. Okay, meaning, why would he oppose Zionism? Because, because A, it was, it was secular. But B, you know, he, this, the whole point of Zionism was we're tired of living as shtetl Jews, trying to keep our head down mm-hmm. and be, you know, keep your head down and, you know, the little Jew and the Jews and the Goyim are going to, you know, be against us. We were talking today, I was talking with my children, about like what did a Jew walk around with? What kind of how was he armed? And I tried to explain to them like in the Middle Ages, the, the Jews didn't were the ones that had the guns. They didn't have the swords. They had no arms. You wanted to survive. You attach yourself to the local lord because otherwise, you, you know, anybody could kill you unless you were under the protection of somebody else. And the, and I'm sorry, the Jews were tired of this. And Rav Henkin seems to me to be perpetrating exactly this perspective of the shtetl Jew. And it's easy for me, yes. I am living here in Israel, but that's why I'm living here in Israel, because I'm tired of mm-hmm. being the shtetl Jew and being told how to behave and, you know, wait for the United States to give you permission to bomb the Syrian nuclear reactor. No way. Sorry. I'm not going to do it anymore. And I'm tired I, of it. And I, I think that Rav Hankin's attitude, Rav Hankin's attitude towards anti-Semitism and Asaph Sone Ediako, I'm not done, Rav Hankin's attitude towards anti-Semitism and his interpretation of Asaph Sone Ediako is habahatalia, exactly connected to that. And because of that, I find both of them tremendously problematic and disturbing. Johnny. Okay. Firstly, as a... As a brief uh, additional tidbit, because I hadn't seen it, it was right in the corner. The original article that we were sent, it does have a date in the corner, Tavshin Chavchet, which is around about 1968. In fact, that means it's the last of the three articles I have in front of me. That's particularly significant. That means the citation that we began with, right? That right, we were shared. Oh, yeah, you're right. After 1967. 19... After 1967. Which is itself very, very significant. Hey, what year However, was it? it? What year was it, Johnny? I missed it. I'm sorry. Uh, 19, uh, my, according to my calculation, 1968. Okay. Now, I, but I want to explain to you how I read the, both these three articles and specifically the one we're focusing on. Okay. So the greatest Jewish leaders, as we know, uh, were both often uh, experts in halakha, but also darshanim. We're seeing here the same thing with Rabbi Yosef Eliyahu Henkin, who is uh, referring to different biblical narratives to try and make sense of the changing world. Now, in this last article, which we're focusing our attention on, he actually cites two passages. 
we mentioned the one about S of Sonet Yaakov, but actually the embedded in his critiques of the intellectual uh, uh, kind of uh, stirring and the, the physical stirring and the and the financial stirring of the non-Jews that may lead them to hate Jews, he refers to the story of the Exodus to Mitzrayim. He quotes, He quotes, He begins basically by saying, uh, I think that uh, there are times in our Jewish-non-Jewish relations that we are like the Israelites vis-a-vis -vis the Egyptians. We're the other. They don't understand us at all. And our task is to keep our heads down. At the same time, he's writing in 1968. That means we already have an established state of Israel for some time. We've already won the Six-Day War. And uh, significant in terms of Jewish and Gentile relations, Nostra Atata has also taken place. That means there's been a fundamental shift in callings about how we can perhaps improve and heal Jewish Gentile relations. And it's quite clear that this is something that he's been interested in for quite some time, how we can improve relations. Unfortunately, of course, we had the Shoah, his first article, 1939, describing his hopes, and those many of those were dashed. But then his next piece in 1959 says, but we can, we can do more together. We can do better together. Maybe it can be different from the Pharaoh-Israelite relationship. Maybe it can be like siblings. He, and and, and uh, as a result of that, he then goes back and refers to the Mama Chazal, isn't an absolute. We can have a paradigm shift. And, and this, by the way, uh, I've seen quite significantly in the writings around Nostratat and others, although he doesn't specifically refer to it. There are many in the Jewish world who said, I don't care whatever the church says. They hate us. We hate them. That's it. There are others who said, this is a unique opportunity to change how things are. I hear in these uh, decades of writing, again, it, they're nuanced and by no means I'm an expert and I'm happy to be uh, told otherwise. But I see in here somebody who's hopeful for change, somebody who's desperate for change, somebody who's seen the worstest of Jewish Europe and who says, maybe we can be different, maybe things can be different. Maybe it doesn't need to be the Egyptian model, maybe it can be the sibling model. And that uh, embedded in his reading of texts is that, of course, we in Israel, uh, kind of say, one second, but should it come at the cost of our success? That's what he seems to be implying. This is what Ruby seems to be bothered by. Why should it be that we have to quash ourselves intellectually, physically? Johnny, look at the, Johnny, look at the end to the second to the last paragraph. And he says it explicitly. He says, specifically, he says, don't, don't stick your head out too much. And he says, even regarding those in Israel, even though Chayelot Yisrael Herugdolot, Right? The, the military I did great things. Yeah. In order for it to last, they have to be patient and suck it up. And be careful, don't, don't get into your own glories. Now, he's not saying, you know, he's not worried about the Six Day War. He's not worried about that. He's worried about antagonizing the enemy. He's, he even, with regard, I, I think, by the way, it's, it's fascinating, it's true to me, I think it's not so nuanced. I think when push comes to shove, Rav Henkin was a Jew born in Russia who experienced tremendous anti-Temitism. He, he understood that it's a truism, there's nothing you can do about it, so just keep your head down. And I think that I, I can't understand it, I understand him very well. I can't understand it because I was not born into that. I was born into a different world. I was born into a proud Jewish world where there was a state of Israel, where my children serve in the army. They serve in the state of Israel. Just yesterday, my son works in, in the army somewhere. I won't say where. 
And he said that, he, you know, he works in the Air Force, my son serves in the Air Force, that, that I can say. And uh, he said that the head of the Air Force, he, like one of the heads of the Air Force, he had, a, he had a rule, don't rely on anyone else, we rely on ourselves. And, and this entire exact opposite of what Rav Henkin says, because they have just different experiences. And I think that this clash of, of my, am I modern Orthodox? What's my identity? Am I religious Zionist? That's a fundamental clash that I think that we living in Israel don't understand about our, about our listeners who, and our family who are living in America. We're just coming from a different place. And I think having been here for 10 years, or each of us 10 plus more years, it becomes less and less, I can't understand it anymore even. I can understand it, I remember it, but it's just not part of our worldview anymore, and nor do I think it should be. And I, I found Rav Henkin's, uh, um, his perspective fascinating and important. I don't think it's wrong. I mean, I, I just think it's, it's, it doesn't describe the anti-Semitism that I understand and the way that I want to live as a Jew today. I don't want to live with my head down. I don't think, personally, I think, he's, I, I think he's wrong. I think whether you put your head down or you don't put your head down, I think Rav Sachs is right. They're going to hate you for that, and they're going to hate you for that. So you might as well be a business leader and try to do the best you can for the world and try to bring about revolution if you think communism is the right thing to do or capitalism or whatever it is you think is right to save the world. You should try to do it because if you don't, they're going to hate you anyway. That's my perspective. Molly. One second, okay. one second. Just, just, just before we go to, to Molly, though. Yeah, Rabbi yeah. Sachs does say that in that talk, but it's somebody who's very much followed the, the teaching of Rabbi Sachs who's had strong relationships, incredible relationships, I'd say uh, world-leading relationships with Christian leaders. He also knows to do so with humility, with modesty, with fostering personal relations without offending people. I mean, he wouldn't, he's not saying stuff them, I'm going to do my own thing. He says, I know that anti-Semitism operates on a different way and, and adapts in its own way. It's like a virus, as we know, but he, he doesn't mean that he, he doesn't think necessarily in any which way that one should aggravate or agitate or upset people who could be a threat no, to the no. Jewish people. Well, that's not what Rev. Henkin said. Rev. Henkin said, don't be a leader, don't be a socialist, don't be a revolutionary, don't be involved in anything that's big, because if you do, they're going to hate you for it. No, but and he, I don't said think, he said things... At the cost that, of Torah, though. Yeah, yeah right? and also things that are big that have uh, undertones that, that uh, are going to upset people. He's very specific with that. Okay, oh, this is what I have to say. I think. I mean, by that, by the way, by even I think Rav Henkin's correct, right. but I don't think it matters. I don't think it matters. And when the time comes, so there are plenty of Jews in enough leadership positions around the world that whatever ills, you know, when the world um, um, markets crash and the economy fails, you know, there are enough Jews involved in the economy, right? Enough Jewish bankers, can we say, Goldman Sachs, whatever. There's enough Jews involved that we're going to get blamed. Yes. Correct. Correct. Okay. okay. So there's nothing you can do about it. But, Absolutely nothing. But his, okay, but I want this is what I want to say. First of all, historically, I think he was correct, and he was giving a um, a blueprint to how to manage in the Gola before before what I again what I will call the Third Jewish Commonwealth. Um, and by the way, I want to agree with with Johnny that Jewish Christian relations is not a small thing. And again, if last week we talked about Kolodito fake, it's one of Rabbeinu's six knocks is the difference in the way Jews. Mm -hmm can have to relate to each other after the return of the Jewish people to their nation. It fundamentally changes Christian theology. So it's really not a small thing, and I'm glad Johnny pointed it out. But what I think, Ruby, I, I don't think we disagree. I think it's just that we are now in a different historical reality. And because you're in this new historical reality, you don't have patience for his approach. But what, what I'm saying is appreciate it historically and appreciate what he's trying to say, 
um, and that what he's trying to he's trying to protect Jews, and probably that was a good Jew to a good way to protect Jews to a limited degree. I agree with you. They're always going to find another way to hate them, but to a limited degree, it was not a bad approach to protect the Jewish people, and that's where it comes from. And I think it's important for us to know to appreciate not just to understand what they had, but to appreciate what we have, because you said um, now you're Israeli. And, um, you know, maybe Americans are still in this mentality. I don't think so. I think the fact that we have the state of Israel has changed all Jewish um, toda'ah, the English, uh, Hebrew word, all, the entire Jewish perspective. And I remember when I first realized this, there's a wonderful book by, by Herman Wouk, who wrote a lot of mm-hmm. interesting books about um, the American Jewish experience. And one of them is called Inside Outside. And if you want to understand what, what being in America in the early 1900s was like, it, it, not early. It, it starts in the early 1900s. It moves through at least the Six-Day War, if not farther. What the American Jewish experience is like, read that book. It's amazing. One of the things he says in there, he works, um, it doesn't matter. He ends up working in the Nixon White House, but that's not the point I want to make. I want to, what the point I want to make is he talks about how the world changed after the Six-Day War. And he talks about, there's a character in the book who I think is a Jewish comedian, and he his jokes are always at the expense of Jews, making fun of Jews as like the nebuch and the loser and, and the idiot and the weak. And, 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 and he says that that comedian was no longer considered funny after the Six Day War because after the Six Day War, for the first time, Jews had this feeling of pride. And, and, and I know this is true. Again, I'm going to quote my father. For the first time, Jews in Basel, Switzerland, after the Six Day War, walked around with kippot on their heads. Right, so 1948 and 1967, and in England as well, yeah, oh, yeah, shifted the world Jewish experience so that when you say, you know, I don't care, We're, we should do it anyway. If you have something to give to the world, give it because you know what, they're going to hate you anyway. You can say that, Ruby. I think, and I'm not. I don't want to speak for you, but I'll certainly speak for myself. I think because part of the, in the back of my head is like, and if you don't like it, every Jew has somewhere to run. And we can defend ourselves because we have the state of Israel. So, so we don't have patience anymore for that attitude. But that's because we are now home, and we now can defend ourselves. And we have, and we're we're no longer um, the the vic, the eternal oppressed victim. But we are now um, on equal playing field, and we have strength. And our strength is is gathering and getting stronger. So we can have the luxury of saying. I don't have patience for Rav Henkin's attitude. Right. We don't have patience because we have the luxury of not having patience because we can defend ourselves because, as you said, um, our sons and our daughters walk around with, um, as, you know, with, with um, the ability to save us. And as Johnny said, you know, he, he, he can hear the rumblings of the plane that's going to save him. And I also, I'll end with one last story. Um, the, the, fir- the second intifada broke out in the early 2000s. Is that true? I forgot when it was. It was uh. Rosh Hashanah. And all of, right, and like all of a sudden, we, we heard these noises on Rosh Hashanah. We didn't know what was happening. We turned on the radio, and um, and, and 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 there was there was a tremendous um, uprising against Jews in all kinds of places in Israel, and and it was scary, but it wasn't so scary because I have an army base across the street from my house, and I knew that that um, there was not going to be a pogrom. There wasn't, nobody was going to run into, rush into my house and massacre me because there were people in the way. And that's different. Jews never had that. The, in the past, when you knew a pogrom was coming, right, watch Fiddler on the Roof. Hi, Tevya, the pogrom is coming. Go hide in, under your pillow, right? And now it's, the pogrom is coming? Well, I know that there's a barrier between me and those, and those marauders. And it's a, it's a completely different 
we have such a different perspective. It's 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 so deeply ingrained in us that we don't sometimes we, don't, we 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 need to be reminded what it used to be like. And for me, it's about appreciating what we have. So Molly, I actually I want to say I agree with every word you just said. Every word you just said. But it's important to like if you want to use Rav Henkin, my whole point was if you want to use Rav Henkin's commentary on Esav's Donet Yaakov, you have to understand it in the context in which he was saying it. It reminds me, I don't know if I've told this story before, it reminds me I was teaching in, in day school in the United States of America and we were doing an active shooter drill. And I remember it like it was yesterday. You know, and everybody's done this, all these kids have done this, a generation of kids have grown up with it. And we, of course, had Israeli shlichim there, and they were in the Kolator of Mitzion. And they're like, okay, we're doing an active shooter drill. And, and they're like, okay, well, let's do an active shooter drill. And so, like, okay, you know, rah, rah, there's a shooter. What do we do? Everybody shuts off the lights. You go down, you shut off the lights, you lock the doors. And the Israelis were looking at us like we're crazy. They said, I don't understand. There's a shooter in the building, and you're hiding as if nothing's going to happen? Like, give me a gun, and I'll go kill them. And it was just so, like... And we Americans are like, what do you mean, bring a gun into the building? What are you, crazy? You, don't, you can't do that. And just their attitude and our attitude were so different. It was, of course, it was like an, there were guns involved and, uh, you know what I'm saying, and Second Amendment issues, but it was so, the difference between their attitude and my attitude, and our attitude, it was so obvious for us what to do and so obvious to them what to do was so pronounced and so strong that it was so striking to me that's what reminds me, that I remind, Rav Henkin's true vote and his attitude reminds me of that story. Johnny. Well, I think, again, I, truth is I agree with everything you both said. Um, and I too kind of, uh, it reminds me of numerous stories in my life, both in, in, in the UK and Israel. But I think there's an important point to remember for ourselves. And this is based actually on some listener feedback from a few weeks ago, when we had a brief conversation, remember, about annexation, right? And, I, and one of the listeners kind of said, okay, basically, you can have your own view, but you need to think about the implication of it for us living outside of Israel. And it, just today I was in Give Up Washington, I had to pick up something and, you know, I was just there listening to the planes, which were, you know, doing their practices and reminded me again of that real sense of comfort. But people who live outside of Israel, some do have that sense that Israel's still there for me, uh, but others don't. Others do feel that sense of vulnerability. Um, and whether they'd necessarily choose the words of Rob Henkin or agree with the sentiments of Rob Henkin, or whether they'd see the world slightly differently because the, this is written again over a lengthy period of time and the last was written, you know, uh, you know, 1968, quite some time ago. There are many who don't have an army base across the road, who don't have a chayalachayalet right there for them, who don't have the Israel Air Force right there above them to be, serve as a reminder. And it's scary. It's scary because it's as if things that can be said or policies that can be supported or even a tweet that you agree to, you know, you know the, the politics of social media can be incendiary. We do have both. It's not just about the physical borders. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's what those physical borders represent. We have this dome, not just the iron dome, the, the dome of, of protection of being here in Israel and all that represents. And there are Jews outside of Israel who still feel that, uh, but there are Jews outside of Israel who don't, for whatever reason, it's not to do with necessarily a lack of conviction and connection to Israel, but perhaps it's a certain sense of being isolated. And they are worried. They are worried about saying the wrong thing and doing the wrong thing. And ultimately, I think it's important to acknowledge that we have listeners who perhaps would relate a little bit more strongly to some of the sentiments of Rav Henkin, not because they're living in the past, but they're living in a different 
setting where those reminders aren't there on a daily basis um, and where on the contrary some you know they they have experienced and do experience uh, comments feedback interactions which make them realize that perhaps they are the other and those words of Lama uh, Titra'u uh, that Rav Henkin cites in relation to Bnei uh, Yaakov just be careful there you know don't be too uh, too out loud um, I think still is relevant to, to many people and I say I know uh, including some of our listeners so those are my thoughts so it's so interesting to me because I remember like anyone who makes Aliyah can remember somebody looking at you or saying to you you're gonna live in the Middle East you're gonna live there where it's so dangerous and and here we are talking about how we have this sense of safety and security here like on the one hand that people don't have and I, I think about it more and more especially in in light of recent events in America, I don't know if you follow, you know, events after the riots where people were literally calling the police and nobody answered the phone. And the, the idea of, of having that, the specter of having that, having nobody answer the phone is something that, Baruch Hashem, we don't, we don't live with that reality. And it just, I, I, I'm, I know for a fact that it's something that, like when that specter of, you know, there's this couple and there's a mob and it wasn't anti-Semitic per se, but the, but the specter of, having no one there to answer the phone, no one to come protect you, you know, I, I'm sure that it, 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 it raises a level of concern. I think it should raise a level of concern for people living in a place where they're not, they don't have the army across the road to defend them. They don't have an Air Force base next door. And I think that's something that, that you know, like as you said, Molly, it makes me feel appreciative of what we have on the one hand, but I don't have it just, I, you know, all of us made tremendous sacrifices in our personal and professional lives to have that. It doesn't come for nothing. It doesn't come for free. You know, everyone living in Israel doesn't have it for nothing. And I think that's something that people have to think about and be aware of. You want to finish up, Molly? No, I just want to say I agree with both of you, and I, and I appreciate Johnny's point, which is to, to have empathy and understanding that there are a lot of people who are, are living with that fear. And, um, and, and I think Ruby's right also that like that fear is growing. There is a growing fear of anti-Semitism in the world. I, I, I'm hearing it from people in America, certainly. Um, yeah, I, you know, and I, I don't want us to come across as kind of jingoistic about how awesome it is to live in Israel. It's, as, as you said also, rightly, there are people who will come back with the argument that, well, we have our own dangers here, which is also true. Um, and it is true. Um, so I, 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 I hope that we're, you know, we all, and I think we are all coming from a place of tremendous respect and understanding and appreciation for the complexities of both realities. And I, 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 I like Johnny's point that like, let's not make assumptions how, about how other people feel and let's have empathy for the complexities of what Jewish communities are going through. I would agree. All right, I thank you all. I wanna thank both of you for having this discussion. We got a little bit in the weeds of Rav Henkin, but I wanted to bring out, I think it, it was a good springboard for, for these particular issues. Let's do something lighter next time, like a women's smicha or something. Okay, so, um, <laughs> that was for Molly. Okay, um, I want to thank Molly Brasky and Johnny Solomon for joining us. I want to thank my son, Petachia Spolter, for writing our music. If you have comments or questions, you know how to reach us, or just maybe write a post on Facebook and we'll talk about it. Uh, if you don't want us to talk about it, then don't write a post on Facebook. Uh, my name is Ruben Spolter. Have a great week, everybody. Bye.